you are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you have a copy of the, uh, God's Word, I ask you to turn to Jonah, chapter 4. If you don't have one, there's, there's one in front of you, or you can follow along on the slides uh, behind me. Uh, we have been in this little book for, this is week five, I told you, it wouldn't be like Matthew. We're going to finish today. Five weeks, it's a record. Uh, but we've been working our way through this little prophet, this minor prophet with a major message, and so we're going to finish today. Uh, one of my first summer jobs when I was, I think, 15 years old, like every boy in the 80s, was working as a landscaper. And so uh, summer job, went to work for a guy at the church, me and a buddy of mine, another 15-year-old, and our first day on the job, he drops us off at this elderly lady's house, and she had this massive garden in the back, and our job was to weed the garden. And so we did. We went and for eight hours, we're just pulling weeds and pulling weeds and pulling weeds and pulling weeds. Uh, and at the end of the day, weary of weeds, we, he came back and picked us up and we walked to the truck. And all of a sudden, this elderly lady starts running out the front, yelling and screaming at us and yelling at him and getting in our face saying, my chive plant, my chive plant. They killed my chive plant, my 25-year-old chive plant. At some point... These rookie landscapers uh, had apparently destroyed her 25-year-old chive plant. Now, in all fairness, have you seen a chive plant? I have a picture. I Googled it, just so you know. It looks like a weed, does it not? It's a, it smells like onion grass. It basically is glorified onion grass. And so she had this 25-year-old onion grass that we did destroy, I will admit it, we, we destroyed it. In fact, I remember specifically, it took us very long to destroy this thing because it was so big. And so we were like, this is a big weed, right? And so we're digging. So she's in our face and we're in shock. And so we have to run back to this pile of weeds that's like this big and dig through it. And we found like the 17 pieces of this thing and we kind of put it together, put it back in the ground, replanted it. From what I hear, it recovered. Uh, and every time we went back to that house that summer, and we had to go back, he would send us back, our boss laughing the whole time. She would be looking out the window, evil eye in us the entire time. I had, to my, I had never seen anyone lose their mind over a plant before until that point. She's the chive lady. And Jonah is the chive lady. They're related, right? They're related. And the reality is this. We all have a little chive lady in us. We do. Uh, We have a little chive lady. Uh, And as we close the book, and we really come to the culmination and the point of the book, what I want to do today is this. I just want to look and observe, where do you act like the chive lady? Where is is your tendencies to act like the chive lady, to act like Jonah? Because this is not who God calls us to be. God does not call us to be the chive lady. He's called us to something different, something greater, something better. And so I just want to be honest with ourselves and talk about how can we not be the chive lady today as we unpack Jonah chapter four. If you remember where we've been, where I think there's each chapter divides into a specific section. Chapter one, the AWOL prophet. God speaks, says, go to Nineveh. He says, no way, Jose. And he goes the other way. Chapter two, he's not AWOL. He's a whale. He's in a fish. He's thanking God for delivering him. Uh, he writes this psalm of thanksgiving for God's grace on his life. Tim taught last week on chapter three where he's now even begrudgingly the preaching prophet where he preaches a five-word sermon and something miraculous happens, the greatest revival the world has ever seen. 
Greatest revival the world's ever seen. 100% uh, of success rate. Even the Lord Jesus didn't have 100% success rate in his ministry. Jonah sees the entire city repent, even the cows. Right? And you would think at that point that the, the book should end. It should be, this is the end of the book. Chapter th- it should be a three-chapter book. It should be Jonah rebels, God forgives, Jonah obeys and God blesses. They lived happily ever after. But that's not how it ends. Right? In chapter four, Jonah becomes the chive lady. And so let me read it, uh, and then we'll come back and unpack it and talk about it specifically. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He's the chive lady. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste and fled and, and to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of it and made a booth for himself. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And the book ends, cattle, done. And you're like, well, that's it? Yeah, because the point is this, the ball is now in your court. that's, That's why it ends so abruptly. That's why Jonah leaves you hanging there, cattle. What are you going to do about it? And, and what I want to do is highlight three big ideas from this text so that we will, will not be the child lady. So we'll not follow Jonah. Because remember, Jonah learned his lesson, which is why he writes the book. If he didn't, he wouldn't have wrote it. So he wants us to see, this is where you go, this is where you not go. So let's start again and ch- really get a running start in, in chapter three, verse 10 and verse one. God saw what they did, they returned, they repented, right? How they turned from their evil way. This is Nineveh. He relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But, there's a big contrast, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Now, this is for the original reader, they pick it up. This is a little Hebrew humor, all right, it doesn't come across in English because for Hebrew humor is different. We think humor, a joke, knock, knock, who's there? Fish, fish, you, bless you, right? I mean, we think that humor, joke, right? Some of you got that, right? But for the Hebrew uh, author and writer, their, their humor is, is in wordplay. And so there's a repetition of a word throughout this book and specifically in these verses, it's the, the Hebrew word ra'ah, evil or bad. And the only person or people so far that have been called ra'ah or evil or bad are the Ninevites. 
right? That God said the ra'ah has come up against me, so I'm gonna bring ra'ah upon them, bad upon them. And so, but here's what happens. God sees that they turn from their ra'ah, so he relents from his ra'ah, and Jonah thinks it's ra'ah, ra'ah, right? So they were bad, God was gonna have bad, but he relents of their bad, and so Jonah thinks it's bad, bad. And the, re- the original reader gets it, and they think that's the silliest thing I've ever read, and that's the point. It's, a, it's an older lady yelling about a 25-year-old chive plant. It's dumb. It's ridiculous. It's silly, all right? And so here's Jonah pouting. He's the chive lady, and he prays. At least he prays, right? But he prays. And in his prayer, we get a little insight to, to the initial conversation he had with God. He said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? We find out that when God originally spoke to Jonah and said, here's the word of the Lord, go to Nineveh, that there was a debate that happened, that Jonah was like, whoa, whoa, wait, what did you say? Typically what a prophet did, when the Dabar Adonai, when the word of the Lord came to the prophet, the prophet took the word of the Lord to the people he was calling to. But Jonah says here, and it's very clear in the Hebrew text, he says, I heard your word, Lord, but you need to hear my word. The fact that what I said is, is literally my word. God, I heard your word, but you need to hear my word. And I don't agree with your word. I don't like your word. This is why I went the other way. And it's, it's a disrespect and a disregard for God that is unheard of for a prophet. You would be, I'm shocked that it wasn't a nice fish that swallowed him. It was, it's not Jaws. It was like, nah, nah, nah. It, it should have been because of this kind of disregard for who God is. But in this verse, we finally get the reason, the, the clear reason, why did Jonah run? Right? It takes him four chapters to tell us, but this is why he ran. It wasn't he was scared of public speaking. It wasn't, it wasn't that he was afraid of the Ninevites. He hated them. He despised the Assyrians. And remember, there's some background there. The Assyrians were constantly attacking Israel. They were constantly taking slaves. They were constantly uh, requiring tribute, but we also saw in chapter one that Hosea and Amos, both contemporaries of Jonah, had prophesied that Assyria would one day come, take the nation of Israel away, and they would be done. So there's all that background, there's all that just just hating them, who they are. And in all fairness to Jonah, it would be, the modern day equivalent would be like a, a, a Jewish person who survived Auschwitz. They made it through the concentration camps and three or four years after the war, God says, arise, go to Berlin and proclaim my message. How's that person gonna feel about going into Nazi Germany and proclaiming these people who have hated us and persecuted us and even killed us? They're gonna say, oh no, I'm gonna take a ship to Manhattan. Just like Jonah, right? that's, That's the background. So Jonah despises them, but on top of that, here's the key. What does he say? I know who you are, God. <laughs> I knew that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you are slow to anger, that you abound in steadfast love. Where does he get that from? Exodus 34, verse six, which we've been reading every week. I knew, God, that in the realm of possibility, maybe unlikely, that as wicked as they were, that they may repent. And if they repented, you would forgive them and you would relent. And I didn't want that to happen. I so hate them that I don't want them to be forgiven. I want them destroyed. And so he runs. 
That's why he knows who God is. And so now he's like, look what you've done. You've forgiven them. Now they're rescued. Now they're like one of us. They're worshiping you. He says, so just kill me, Lord. Kill me. Take me out. Please take my life from me. It's better for me to live than die. And if I'm God, I'm like, all right. Sharknado, you know, come get you. But that's not what God does, right? That's not what God does. He's going to be patient with Jonah just because he always is. And remember, Jonah's got to go back to Israel, right? You, you, there's, there's a lot of depth here. He's got to go back to his own people. They're going to be like, did you give it to him, Jonah? Did you let him have it? He's like, yes, I did. But here's the thing. I mean, shocker, they repented. And then God forgave them. And now they're like us. Yay, God, right? I, that's what it should have been. Praise God, look. But that's not where he is. He's pouting. He's angry. And so verse four, God asked him a question. Do you do well? Is it right for you to be angry? Are you really that angry about this, Jonah? I mean, are you really angry that I've done this? It's a great question, right? It's a great question. And, and here's kind of the first thing for us today. That, that, uh, to just check our hearts to see if we're being a chive lady or to keep us from being a chive lady. It's, right, it's just out of Jonah. It's, hey, let's stop pouting and think about things for a minute here. Let's stop pouting and think, who is Jonah really angry with ultimately? Is it the Ninevites? Is it himself? He's angry with God. He's, he's angry that God is not doing what he thinks he should do. He's angry with God's grace, he's, which is in tune with God's character. It's who God is. So he's saying, God, I don't like your sovereignty and I don't like who you are. That's, that's pretty, pretty strong. But the reality is this, we're just like him sometimes. We're fine with grace and blessing and, oh yeah, grace and mercy for me. I'm good with grace for me. I need it. I long for it. I pray for it but not that group of people over there. Not grace. I'm fine if you love me, God. Praise God, I celebrate your love, but I'm not gonna celebrate you loving them. No, sir. Don't love them. In fact, I want you to destroy them because there's this us versus them mentality with Jonah. And y'all, we have it too. And our culture is moving us and pushing us, whether we know it or not, more and more and more and more to that us versus them, us versus them. Right? If you disagree with somebody in anything, right? What do we do? We don't just, we don't just disagree and have a civil de- debate and walk away and have coffee. No, no, we want them done. Remember that year, a couple years ago, that guy went down to Africa and shot a lion, that dentist? And he came back and they put it on Instagram. Don't put shooting lions on Instagram. If you go shoot a lion, they'll do it. They were giving him death threats. It's like they want him dead. And we see this all the time. You disagree with me? You, you're angry with me? We say something back in the seventh grade that you don't like. I tweeted something as soon as I got, you know, Twitter back in 09. You're done. We want you not just, we don't want you just, uh, we don't disagree. We want you gone. We want you done. We want you out. You're, you're, you're gone. That's the mentality. That's where we live today. Forget healthy debate. Forget civility, right? We want you out. Different political party, right or wrong. You're over here. I'm over here. We want you gone. Right? You're the guy in our neighborhood that you don't take care of your yard. We want him out. Move him out. We want him gone. He likes country music. We want him out. Get him out. 
whatever it is, and we're pushing and pushing and pushing. And I'm not saying that these people are wrong and these people are right, but there is a lack of civility that we just want people gone. It's the chive lady, and it is so far from the heart of God and who he wants us to be. And we pout, we're angry. And when I think the key contributors to pouting for us, spiritually pouting, you know what it is? It's comparison. It's comparison. They got this, I got that. I wanted this. They don't deserve this, I deserve this. And so we get mad and we challenge, God, why this and not that? And we see on social media, oh, their kid got into the school my kid wanted to go to and he didn't get in and they did. They don't deserve that, their kid cheats, their kid this, their kid that, my kid's this, my kid's that. And we get mad. Why did they get to go on that trip? Why do they seem so happy? Why do they do this? Why do they do that? Why do me? And we just get mad and we compare and we contrast and we think, oh, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. That's where Jonah is. And we pout because God is not on board with what you think he should be doing. God is not running things the way you would run things. He should never bless that group of people. He should bless me. And, and we got to stop pouting and comparing. And we have to think, just think. Jonah, just think about this. Think about you. Forget Nineveh. What has God done for you, Jonah? You, you completely blew God off. You completely disobeyed and he saved you. He delivered you. Should have killed you. You should be at the bottom of the sea. You should be fish food. And, and he saved you. On top of that, then he gave you a second chance and then you went and you went begrudgingly, but you still went and he used you in a way that he hasn't used a prophet in the Old Testament ever. So much so that he uses what Jonah, happened to Jonah as a picture of the Lord Jesus himself. I mean, he used him greatly, begrudgingly. He did all this and you're still mad that God's not doing things the way you think. And, and what we need to do as, as the people of God is get our eyes off everybody else. What's God doing over there? What's God doing to that family? What's God doing to them? And we need to look, what has God done for you? What, how, how has God shown you and me Grace. What has he given us? I mean, he's given us eternal life. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. He has given you pleasures forevermore. More than a million lives of getting everything you ever want. It's better in the presence of God. That's what he has given you. You were an enemy. We sung about it. You were an enemy, an object of his wrath. He has made you his own so that you were loved. You were loved in a way by God that you will never be loved by any other person in the world, ever. You have a purpose now, as a follower of God, you're on the mission of God, you're his child, you have a purpose that is more significant than the president of the United States, the president of whatever, the most important job in the world. Your job and purpose as a follower of God is, is better than that. Your comfort and hope given in the Holy Spirit, his presence in you is better than any friend. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You have everything in Christ and you deserve none of it. He's an unobligated giver to an undeserved gift and, and that's what he's been giving you. So for you to turn and say, yeah, but their kid got into that college and he got a raise and I didn't, it's ludicrous. It's the chive lady, right? It's the chive lady. Because you can't be upset when you are the recipient from an unobligated giver, an undeserved gift. You can't be upset if God in his providence and sovereignty says, I'm gonna bless that person too. You cannot be upset because what you have been given. You can't, not logically. And we all, we all do it. We all have a tendency. 
Even the apostle Peter. We've seen it. The end of the gospel of John. Peter, who rejected God, who denied Jesus, Jesus fully restores him. Do you love me, Peter? I love you. Do you love me, Peter? I love you. Do you love me, Peter? I love you. He fully restores him to his apostleship, to that relationship with Jesus. And like 13 seconds later, Jesus is like, and by the way, you're gonna die for me one day. Peter's like, well, what about John? What about John over there? What's gonna happen to John? I mean, he just got forgiven. He just got lavished with grace. That's what we do. And what does Jesus say? You let me handle John. You follow me. I'll take care of John. He's going to sit on the island. He's going on a Gilligan's Island for a while. You follow me. And that, that's it. You've been lavished with grace. Right? You have. And so the question you have to say is, are you willing to show it? And the hard question is, okay, are you willing to show it to the people that you don't like? Who is that person, that group of people, that whatever, that if you saw them in the publics on the cereal aisle, you're skipping to the paper towels. They didn't see you, you saw them. And you needed some honeycombs, but you ain't getting honeycombs now. You're going down to bounty because you do not want to see them because you can't stand them. Who is that person, that group of people? Maybe it's a competitor in business. Maybe it's an ex. Maybe it's someone who wounded you. You know who it is. Would you be willing to pray for that person if God so led you. And I'm not talking, yeah, I'll pray for them. Pray the judgment of lightning and wrath on them. <laughs> I'll pray. No, I'm, would you pray for them that God would bless them? Because God says to bless our enemies, to love our enemies. Would you do that if he asked you? Could you do that? Could you forgive them even though they wounded you deeply? Could you extend grace? I'm not saying you have to agree with them. I'm not saying you're validating what they have done. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, could you extend grace to them? Because if you can't, you're the child lady. You're Jonah. You're comparing. I don't like them because whatever. It's not grace. I think one of the greatest examples outside of clearly the gospel uh, is uh, the story of Corrie ten Boom. I don't know if you know her story. If you haven't read The Hiding Place, you need to read The Hiding Place. Uh, but at the end of her book, after being uh, getting out of the, the concentration camps, uh, I, I just want to read a portion of her book because I think it's powerful. And here, this encounter she had. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. Balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt clutched hat between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947. I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back to me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in 1947. People stood up in silence and in silence collected their wraps and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform, a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, 
how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good is it to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea? And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he? One prisoner among a thousand. But I remembered him and his leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and blood my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I, I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, who sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will I, your Father in heaven forgive you. I knew it not only as a commandment, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. See, that's the opposite of the chive lady. Because when you experience grace, truly experience it, you cannot, you cannot withhold it because it's not about you. It's about him. And Jonah's not there. He will be, but he's not there. He's still pouting. He's still mad. He's still having a temper tantrum like a five-year-old. And so verse five, Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself. And he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Has a little temper tantrum, goes outside the city, and he's basically sitting under this little booth, which is ironic. It's supposed to the same word for the, that which is made for the Feast of Tabernacles, where they celebrate God's faithfulness. And he's sitting under his little booth, mad, watching the city. Maybe God will change his mind. Maybe it'll be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe I get a front row to see their destruction. And God is going to take that little booth and turn it into a classroom, some class participation, a little bit of object lesson for him, the plant, the worm, and the wind. He's going to bring, right? So he will, he will learn the lesson. And it's interesting, this, the word for plant that he's going to use, it's in the Hebrew, it's got this little diminutive at the end. It means little plant. He's going to take a little plant and a little worm. He's already used a great wind and a great fish. And see, this is what God does. Because everything is at his disposal in his providence and his sovereignty. And God takes things and circumstances 
to teach his people to have a heart like his. And so he's gonna teach Jonah about grace. And the question is this, what is he gonna teach you? Here's a second point I want us to grab just for a second so we don't become the chive lady. Is pay attention to what God is doing and learn. Because he can take little worms and little plants and great fish and great winds to make you more like him. He wants to take this chive lady prophet and turn him into something different. And he wants to make you more like Jesus. And he will use everything at his disposal to do so. Big and little, little taps on the shoulder. Hey, you get this? You see this? That's what he does. Reminded it this week. So one night, my uh, family and I are trying to eat healthier, so me and, uh, and my wife are going to McDonald's. And so, <laughs> it's the American way. And uh, I went to the McDonald's over there off Montgomery Crossroads, because it's usually the one that has uh, the, the most success rate with their shake machine. Okay, we have them ranked in the this, in this city. And so I go there, and I pull into the uh, drive-thru, I order my order, and I said, I want a strawberry shake. And then you hear those devastating words, sorry, the shake machine's down. Devastating. Uh, and so I had, I had a decision to make, and I made the right one. I said, cancel my order, and I drove off. I called my wife real quick, I said, it's down, it's broken. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth in the background. Uh, and I said, but I'm gonna try Eisenhower. It's, not a, it's got a lower percentage, but you never know. It's only a mile up the road. So I pull up in there. I pull up in the drive-thru. And the first thing I say is, ma'am, is your, is your shake machine broken? And she said, no, it's working. I said, praise the Lord. I texted, we in. And you know, win. <laughs> Ordered, got our shakes. And my wife responded with this little phrase. It was great. It said, see, God cares about even the little things. I thought, yeah, I don't think God destroyed the shake machine at this one and made it this one. I don't think that. But I do, I am reminded of the simple truth that everything is little for God and he is sovereign over little worms and big plants and God cares about the little things. It's a little tap on my shoulder. Where's God tapping you? Are we paying attention to what he's doing? Or are we so concerned about our sports or about our political list that we're missing what God is doing in your life? Because he has little things all the time. Maybe you're a parent, you're trying to teach your little ones about patience and patience and good. And you think, oh, look, at was the greatest lesson on patience. My, I'm Deuteronomy 6 in this thing. I'm teaching. And then you get in the, on Duran and there's traffic and you're all mad. And God's saying, woohoo, tap, tap. Patience is important. Good job. Right? Or maybe you're killing it at the office right now and business is going well. You just got a raise. You just got a promotion. And you're thinking, look how great I am. And God's saying, woohoo, I gave you that. Now I want you to steward that raise and I want you to steward this blessing for my name's sake, not for your name's sake. Just a little tap, right? It's just lessons everywhere, right? And sometimes we don't learn in, in good things. We learn more, unfortunately, through pain, which is why Lewis says, we ignore often pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so money is tight. And you're like, I don't know how we're gonna pay for this, pay for this. And it's a little tap, God saying, I care about the sparrows, I care about the flowers, you're good. I'll give you your daily bread. Or maybe you're, there's sickness and you're, you're, there's pain and back pain or this. I pull a muscle this week uh, in my back, getting out of my car, and I'm not lying. <laughs> getting out of my car. And it's a reminder, tap, tap. This is all going this way, but resurrection's coming. New glorified body. Right? It's just a little lesson, a little tap. Right? Maybe you're praying and praying, God, do this, God, do this, and, and it seems like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Maybe God's tapping you in the shoulder saying, perseverance, keep seeking, keep knocking. Or maybe it's you're praying the wrong thing. Why don't you pray instead of your will be done, 
my will be done. See how that works, right? Maybe it's your roommates, your parents, your sister, your uncle saying, this relationship is not good. He's a dirt ball. And it's God's tapping on your shoulder saying, hey, listen, I, I don't know what God is doing in your life. I don't know what God the Holy Spirit is doing. I know this. He takes little worms, little plants, big fish, big winds to rouse our attention, to make our hearts in tune with his. And so I think it's important for us, if you're not gonna be the chive lady, to pay attention to what God is doing and learn. Because if you don't learn, you're gonna be yelling about a 25-year-old chive plant that smells like onion grass and no one cares. Right? And no one cares. Because guess what? It's been four, 35 years. She's probably not around anymore and that chive plant may be in the backyard, but no one cares. No one cares. Right? So let's learn and stop pouting and let's see the lesson real quick that God was teaching, how he was teaching it. Now, the Lord appointed, same word that he used for he appoints a fish. Now, he appoints a plant, a little plant, and made it come up over Jonah. We don't know what type of plant. Whatever it was, it was enough that it provided shade. So that it might be shade over his head to save him from his Hebrew humor. The word discomfort is the word for evil, his ra'ah. His, God is still saving Jonah from his ra'ah, his evil, even though Jonah is miserable. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Probably the saddest verse in this entire book. The only time Jonah ever is happy is about this dumb plant. The only time. But when dawn came, the next day, God appointed, same word, a worm. And it attacked the plant. God says, kill. And he says, okay. And he chews through this thing. And it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed, same word, a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down. The word for beat down is the same word for the worm attacking the plant. It attacked Jonah. The hot sun attacked Jonah on his head and he's faint and he's asked that he might die. It's better for me to die than live. He's all, man, you didn't destroy him. And no, you took my plant, my precious plant. You killed the precious and it's hot. Oh, kill me, Lord. It's better to die and live. And then God asked him a question again. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? The idea is, are you right in this? Are you, really? You're so angry about the plan? He says, yes, I do well to be angry. I'm good enough to die. It's a Hebrew idiom. It's, I could be as, I couldn't be angrier. I'm as angry as I could be. Yes, and I am right about it. So he's like, good, let's talk about that. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, did you have anything to do with this plant? Did you, you know, did you plant the seed? Did you rake the ground? Did you put fertilizer in? Did you water it? Did you give it sunlight? Did you anything? You have anything invested? No. And how long was the plant around for, Jonah? Like 18 hours. All right. And you love the plant. We established that. You're mad about the plant. You love the plant. You have pity on the plant. All right. What about this? Should not I, and it's emphatic in the Hebrew, shouldn't I... I have pity on Nineveh, that great city, that city that has been around since Genesis chapter 10, been around a while, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the right from the left. Some people think this is kids. Some people think this is an idiom for just ignorance. We don't know for sure. Commentators are divided, but either way, it's at least 120,000. It's a lot of people. And on top of that, what about the cows, Jonah? You don't care anything about the animals, the dogs? The donkeys, the cats, forget the cats, but the dogs and the donkeys, you don't care about the animals? You don't have any pity on them? 
You love a plant which you had nothing to do with, which you didn't bring into existence and was gone in less than 24 hours. Do not I have the right, Jonah, to care about the people of Nineveh who are, by the way, created in my image for my glory, which I sustain, which I feed, which I have brought into existence. And on top of that, Jonah, they're not gonna be around for 24 hours. They're gonna live forever, either in heaven and in hell, period. They're eternal, immortal souls. Shouldn't I, who has a lot more invested in that, show pity on them when you're caring about the dumb plant, Jonah? And then he ends, cattle. And it ends. In the words of Sean Connery, here endeth the lesson. Right? That's from Untouchables, by the way. But here's the point of the book and the point of everything that we've been talking about, where God gets him to a point, and finally, I think he learns because he writes the book. What's more important, people or plants? People or plants? And you're like, oh, of course, you're not plants, right? But you gotta remember what the plant was, Jonah. A plant was the creature comfort, right? It's, you know, you're like, I don't care about plants. I, you know, I hate my grass. I want rocks in my yard, whatever. It's not about being a plant. It's about what is it that brings you comfort, what is it that you delight in? Maybe it's that new car with the seat warmers and it parallel parks for you because you're weak sauce or because it's got leather interior. Maybe it's that, that you're so proud of. Maybe it's the extra house or, or your yard. It's the best yard. It is the best yard. Or maybe it's your golf clubs or your 401k or the, it's your starting position on the team. Maybe it's your wardrobe. I wear Peter Millar. Look at me. I'm better dressed than everybody. Right? I, I don't know what it is. Whatever that thing is that you delight in, and if you lost it, you'd be so mad. That's your plan. And what God is saying is, what's more important to you, the plants or the people in your life? Yeah, but you don't know those people. They're jerks. My boss is a jerk. My ex is a jerk. My parents did this. This guy did this. Yes. What's more important, people or plants? And if we're honest, sometimes we have to say, the plants. We saw this firsthand uh, this past week. We were on a plane, flight from LAX to Atlanta. We landed in Atlanta, and they had an emergent, medical emergency on the plane. We don't know what's going on. And they say, please stay in your seats until we get the MS on. And everyone's like, okay, we got to stay in our seats until they bring down the wheelchair to get this person off. And I'm telling you, five minutes later, we hadn't seen anything. The EMS comes on. They're still in the back. People are just getting up and getting their bags. And, and the poor stewardess is like, please sit down. We cannot get this person out of the plane without being there. And no one's listening. And then there's a lady behind us. She's like, I'm shaming all of you. I'm shaming all of you. And I'm like, we don't really, they don't really care apparently that you're shaming them. I don't know what that means. But <laughs> so she's just yelling at them. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. And this, you know, finally they get everyone to sit down. But a bunch of people left. They got off the plane. They're like, whoa. Why? Because their plant was their connection. Their plant was me. I don't want to sit here for five whole minutes when this person may be dying. We don't even know what's going on. Right? That's, that's the human heart. Me. Me. And look, it is so far from the heart of God. Look, I know that the world is sinful. I know they've lost their mind and they're trying to decide if they're this or that. I'm a they, I'm a that. I know it's crazy. I get it. It's so far, it's Romans 1. I get it. But here's the thing. God loves lost people. God loves messed up people. God chases messed up people to try to stop them from destroying themselves. And sometimes they don't listen. I get it. But Nineveh did. Nineveh was a messed up place. 
and evil, wicked, sexually immoral, violent, hateful people who repented of their sin and Jonah could care less. And I wonder if sometimes if the church is like that. I wonder if we're like, yeah, we're fine with our grace. Y'all can just all be gone. We just want you out. And that is so far from the heart of our God. That is the chive lady, right? Because these are the very people that God, I'm not saying you agree with them, I'm not saying you validate it, but you cannot withhold grace because you disagree or because they're sinners because that's what God did for you. And these are the very people that God is wanting us to be the church to, to be his church, right? And so, I mean, you want an example? Jesus on the cross, looking down at the very men who nailed his feet to a cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's not that they've never crucified him before. They've crucified hundreds of people. They just didn't know that they were doing it to the Son of God, and he forgives them. If he can do that, what say you? Right? And what God the Father is saying to us today, I sent my son to die in your place for your sin. I crushed my own son. I loved him, but I loved you too. So I sacrificed him so that you could know me. Now, what say you? What are you gonna do? And I'll leave it as kind of stark and as sharp ending as he did. Are you gonna pout, comparing yourself to everybody, or are you gonna think about the grace God has shown you? Are you gonna learn from the things God is doing in your life, or are you gonna be asleep in class? Are you gonna value your Peter Millar golf club, car, vacation, reputation? Or are you gonna care about the people that he has put in your life that need him? Cattle. Let's pray. Father, help us to have the heart uh, that you have given us in your spirit, a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. You are gracious, you are kind, you are slow to anger with us. Help us to be with others. I know it's hard for people, uh, especially if someone's just wounded us and, and been cruel to us even. And I'm not validating any of those things, but we have to be willing to offer grace because you did. We have to be willing to forgive because you did. And we have to be willing to take the message of reconciliation as your ambassadors to a lost world. So help us to do it, even when it's challenging. Just like Corey, we'll raise our hand even woodenly and trust that you will bring the fruit. Uh, and we'll see what you're gonna do. I pray it for Christ's name and his reputation. Amen. Go stand as we sing together.